I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy 3, and this morning we are looking at the first nine verses. First, or Second Timothy 3, verses 1 through 9, please give your full attention to God's word. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Billy Graham used to tell the story about his wife, Ruth. One day she was reading an early draft of a book that Billy was writing, and she had just finished a chapter that talked about the decline of morality in our country, the increasing corruption of our culture, the increase in idolatry and greed and violence and sexual immorality. And after having read that chapter, she sat the draft of the book down and she said something that has been very often quoted since. I'm sure most of you have heard this quote. She said to her, to her husband, Billy, if God doesn't punish America soon, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Ruth Graham said that in 1965. That's over 50 years ago. You can only imagine how concerned she would be about the state of our culture now. Even though there's a big grain of truth in what she says and we resonate with that, there's also something about what she said that shows what's wrong with it. There's kind of some weak theology in that quote. You see, judgment doesn't work that way. God hasn't poured out judgment on America since then. He hasn't poured out judgment on Russia or China or Saudi Arabia. Does that mean that he owes an apology to nations like Babylon or Persia or Rome? These countries, wicked countries that he has punished and empires he's punished in the past? No, of course not. God is a righteous judge who must do right. But God chooses the timing of the outpouring of his judgment. And God 
has a complex array of reasons and purposes for why he delays judgment. And I don't pretend to know, I'm not a prophet, I don't know why he's delayed judgment upon our country or any other country in the world now or any other country in history. I know that all of us, apart from his grace, deserve judgment immediately. So every breath we breathe is an act of grace where God is delaying his judgment. The Bible tells us one good reason why he's delaying judgment. It's for repentance. To give time for repentance and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is trying to give Timothy a perspective, a heavenly perspective, God's perspective, on the difficulties that he faced in the, his culture, in his church setting, in the first century 2,000 years ago. Paul says to Timothy, but understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. He's saying to Timothy, until Christ comes back, your job is going to be hard. Now, many Christians will read this and read last days, and they'll immediately think of some difficult days off in the future right before Christ returns. But Paul's not talking about those days only. He's talking about Timothy's days. You can tell in the context. He's talking about issues that Timothy is facing. Paul considers Timothy in the first century to be in the last days. We are in the last days, and we will be in the last days until Christ comes again. The term last days, if you are careful to study the New Testament, you find out that the term last days applies to the entire, when the Bible uses that phrase, it applies to the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. All of those days are the last days. And that sounds like, how could that be? 2,000 years, how could that long of a period be the last days? Well, the Bible doesn't think in terms of a piling up of years. The Bible thinks in terms of the plan of redemption. And so you think about the plan of redemption from all the way back in the Garden of Eden when God cast out Adam and Eve and didn't immediately bring judgment upon them but allowed them to go on, entered into a relationship with them through faith, entered into a relationship with Noah, entered into a relationship with Abraham, and all of the covenants that are revealed as God unveiled his plan of redemption, the purpose was that God is accomplishing the salvation of his people. And when you think about it, everything that needs to be done for God's people to be saved has already been done at the cross. When Jesus died for our sins and was raised from the dead, everything that needed to be done in order for us to be saved has been completed, it has been accomplished. Jesus said it is finished, except one thing, and that's for Jesus to come back. And to put away sin and death and Satan once and for all. And to bring our salvation to complete perfection. That's all that... So, so when you think about all the steps in the plan of redemption, we are in the last days. We are in that last section where salvation has been made completely complete. But now we wait for him to bring the fullness of it. We are in the last days. So how do we survive as Paul describes these last days, that becomes the question that you ask as you read this passage. How do we survive in these last days? How do we thrive? He, Paul says these are going to be, there are going to be seasons or times of difficulty. Paul wants Timothy to be prepared for that, that life and ministry 
in these last days is going to be hard. And what's the cause? Paul tells us immediately. What's the cause of all the times of difficulty? People. People. It's that simple. He starts listing characteristics of people. Paul lists 19 different terms or phrases that describe human depravity. These are 19 terms or phrases in three short verses. And I don't have time, don't even begin to have time to delve into each one of these that he uses. But I can summarize it with basically three categories. There are, first of all, four of these terms or phrases that, they, that trace the problem to what we love in our old nature, the nature that we're born with into this world. We love self. We love money. We love pleasure. And we don't love what is good. And so four of these phrases refer to what's the problem with what we love. What are, what are we passionate about? What do we desire? The second set really go to the root of all that, and just, it was striking to me of the 19 different descriptions, three of them are all synonyms for the, word, for the term pride. One of them, he says pride, arrogance, and conceit. And there you have the root of all rebellion against God. And then the rest of them either talk about a lack of spiritual fruit, we talk about the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5, well also Galatians 5 talk about the fruit of human depravity, and a number of things that are listed in Galatians 5 are also here. An absence of thankfulness, an absence of holiness, an absence of compassion, an absence of submission. And then the rest of them deal with the effect of this pride in our lives, which is broken relationships with other sinners. People are abusive, slanderous, disobedient, treacherous. And so Paul, for effect, piles up all of these dark descriptive terms of what human depravity really is. And Paul wants Timothy to understand that the degree to which he has to deal with this in his life and ministry is not exceptional. That these kinds of people are going to be present until Christ comes again. Human beings are not more sinful today than they've ever been before. A lot of Americans feel that way because of what we've witnessed during the course of our lifetime. But human beings are not more sinful today than they were 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, or 2,000 or 7,000 years ago. People are not more sinful today. What's changed and what we've seen over the course of our lifetimes is that, the, that God has put in place, in his mercy, in his compassion, he has put in place what we would call restraints upon human depravity restraints upon the wickedness of mankind. Things that, that God has put in place in society, in our lives, to keep us and other people from becoming as wicked as we would be otherwise. One of them, according to scripture, is the human conscience. Where would we be if God had not written the law of God in a vague way upon our hearts? The second one is human government. Romans 13 tells us that, that government is put in place to restrain wickedness. Even beyond that, we think of, of the family, that God in, in, ensures that the family structure is in place to restrain wickedness. And yet, when we look at our lifetime, we wonder why things have gotten more overtly sinful in our lifetime. It's because these restraints upon wickedness have been increasingly ignored, corrupted, disregarded, weakened, 
and resisted. And as these things have dissipated and disappeared and become corrupt in our culture, so therefore our innate depravity has gotten freer expression and free, more freedom to operate. People aren't more, <coughs> excuse me, people aren't more sinful today. They are just freer to express and practice their sin. We've come out of the closet in every possible way, not just in regard to homosexual sin, but every kind of sexual immorality, every kind of sin that the scriptures describe has become not only accepted in our culture, but promoted in our culture. You see, the problems, what we've seen in history, the problems in the world can't be fixed solely by the restraints that God has put in place in his common grace. Government can't fix our problems. Families can't fix our problems. More education can't fix our problems. Our problems are spiritual. Our problems deal with issues of the heart, these things that Paul is describing here. We just had, went through a recent round of elections, and we heard lots of politicians promising to fix our problems. But they're talking about things like more education, more money, more government, these things cannot fix our problems. They can maybe hold back our wickedness, but they cannot solve our problems. All right, having said all that, I want to leave the general aspect of human depravity because that's not Paul's context here. Paul is not pointing to Timothy. He's not telling Timothy about all those bad people out there. He's talking about those depraved people in the church. You need to understand that to understand this text. Everything he says here, he's talking about people inside the visible church. He says in verse 5, having talked talk about these same people, says having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. They are outwardly religious, they are outwardly pious, they outwardly say the right things, but they deny the power of true religion, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do not believe right things and they do not practice right things. They are false teachers, they are hypocrites, and they are heretics, and they are still enslaved to that, that depraved nature, and they are inside the church. Jeremiah, 2,600 years ago, said this about the hypocrites and heretics and false teachers in his day. He says, why, do the, why does the way of the wicked prosper? This is Jeremiah 12, 1 and 2. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them, they take root, they grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. That sounds something very similar to what Isaiah said. Jesus quoted Isaiah. Isaiah lived 700 years before Christ. Jesus quoted him and said to the religious hypocrites and false teachers in his day in the church, he said, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jesus all pointed to the reality, the times of difficulty, because we have heretics and false teachers in the church. In Matthew 23, Jesus compared these people to cups that are clean on the outside, but dirty inside. And even more graphically, he described them as whitewashed tombs, white and pretty on the outside, but full of dead men bones inside. This reminds me of uh, every two years, Ligonier Ministries does a survey of, of uh, evangelicals, people who 
claim to believe the gospel or claim to be a part of the, the Bible-believing church. And it's always interesting to read what the surveys say evangelicals believe. The most recent one, the one that was done near this year, found that 52% of people who profess to be Bible-believing Christians, 52% of them believe that people are good by nature. 51% of them believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. 78% of them believe that, God, that Jesus was created by God. All that's just to illustrate that we have hypocrites, heretics, in the, 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 the professing, Bible-believing, evangelical church. So how do we deal with that? If that's to be the reality, if that's what we live with in this age, the last days, until Christ comes again, how do we survive it? How do we thrive in it as the church of Jesus Christ? There has always been the faithful remnant. There's, there's the visible church that you can see, those that are on the membership rolls, those that, that uh, are a part of the visible church, but there's always been within the church, the visible church, the invisible church, as God sees it, those who truly have faith in Christ, who have truly been born again. How does the faithful remnant respond? First thing that Paul says to Timothy, you must separate. Paul gives a very simple command. He says, avoid such people. Now, again, he's not talking about those kinds of people out in the world. He's talking about those kinds of people that are in the church. Jesus said that as far as those people like that that are outside the church, he said, speaking of his church, he prays for the church. He says, I do not ask that you take the church out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We must separate from the world so that we can go back into the world. We are not of the world, but, but we are in the world. That's what Jesus taught us. And Paul was very quick to condemn the church when it did not exercise church discipline. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul rebukes this church in Corinth. And if you remember from a couple years ago when we were studying our way through 1 Corinthians, the church in Corinth was a church that was making all kinds of compromises with the culture around it. it was, the church had idolatry in it, it had sexual immorality in it. It was not, it was not in any way a, a church that was operating as it should. And in one particular place, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul rebukes the, the Corinthian church for not excommunicating a man who was involved in scandalous sexual sin and was unrepentant in it. And listen to what Paul says to the church. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, those people out there, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? <clears throat> is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person, from among you. Now we read that and think, well, okay, but, but I sin, I lie, I cheat, I steal, I do things that are wrong. Is this talking about me? No, it's talking about people who are unrepentant in their sin, like this man who would not repent of his sexual sin. If they will not repent after 
countless attempts to bring them back into the fold, to bring them to obedience, if they remain defiant and unrepentant, then the church must lovingly exercise church discipline and separate, as Paul says, avoid such people. It's not because we feel morally superior. It's not that we are their judges. But we are to discern that their sin is infecting the church and is hindering the ministry of the church and is bringing a bad reputation upon the church. And so in love, we are to hold our brother and sister accountable. Paul talks about it. Uh, it goes on to say in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see what he's saying is if the Holy Spirit is truly in your midst, if you are part of the faithful remnant, if you are the, the invisible church as God sees it, then the Holy Spirit has changed your heart and therefore is transforming your lives. And in order for you to be able to have a witness to the world, you need to be able to discern when there are those among you who are not living by the Spirit, those who are living in unrepentant sin, and especially those who are denying the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the heretics, the false teachers. Paul says you must avoid such people. The elders must hold people accountable. It's one of the scandals of the church today is that we so rarely see church discipline done. That we so rarely see unrepentant sinners and heretics and false teachers being excommunicated from the church. A lot of church people don't even know what excommunication is. We are not holding each other accountable and that is not loving among our brothers and sisters in the church. And it is ruining our witness. In Israel, in Old Testament Israel, being separate was a huge part of their identity. They were God's people. They were a holy people. They were set apart. It was spelled out in the Old Testament laws about how they were to separate from the ways and the religions of the other nations. And if somebody was in another nation, in another among other people and they wanted to worship Yahweh, they wanted to be part of God's people, they had to become fully Israelite. They had to, to submit to all of the rituals prescribed and all of the behavior prescribed in the Old Testament law. They had to submit to that, be, be part of Israel by becoming fully Israelite. Just as somebody who seeks to leave the world today and become a Christian needs to become fully a Christian and not keep a foot in both worlds, so to speak. It's even symbolized in how the Israelites ate and how what they wore. God was continually driving that point home, and it wasn't just for them. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, it was an example for us that we must too be separate. It was a major theme in the Old Testament prophets. Try reading through the Old Testament prophets sometime and you'll see that God cares about, about his people separating from the idolatry and the immorality of the cultures and the nations around them. God is the same today. He's not a different God in the New Covenant or in the New Testament. Listen to what Paul says to the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, talking to the same compromising church. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
For what partnership has righteousness to do with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord does Christ with, has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Paul goes on in the beginning of chapter 7 to say, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We are to be a people who are passionate about and pursuing holiness. And if there are some in our midst who refuse to pursue holiness, who are unrepentant in their sin, are living in open rebellion and rejection over a period of time as they are counseled and, and, and called upon to repent and they're unwilling to, then they must come under church discipline. And we need to separate because we love them and need to hold them accountable. And we must not let the church become infected. One of the problems with the church in America today is that we are too judgmental towards the sins and, and false beliefs outside the church. We're judgmental about them. And we are too tolerant of them inside the church. This comes down to a very difficult issue. We talked about the church leadership needing to take this seriously. But you as individual believers, you who are part of the church, you need to take this seriously in your own life. What does Paul mean for you? Look at the relationships in your life. Are you unequally yoked? We often apply this only to marriage, but it doesn't only apply to marriage. It applies to any relationships that are too intertwined, too interdependent, that cause you to actually compromise and enter into the sin or at least to condone the sin of someone else. That's what it means to be yoked. And you can do that in many different kinds of relationships. Don't be unequally yoked. Don't have fellowship with those who claim to follow Christ but refuse to live under his lordship and who deny the, the, the essential elements of his gospel. What does that mean about the relationships in their life? Can you be friends with unbelievers? Absolutely. But do not be yoked. Do not be in fellowship. Do not bring yourself into a position of compromise with those who are rejecting Christ and the gospel. Are the people in your life are you, you know, if you're dealing with somebody who is in sin, who is in unrepentant sin, are you pointing them to Christ? Are you leading them to Christ? Or are they leading you away from him? It's an important question to ask yourself. Assess the relationships. Second thing we need to do, if we think about false teaching, heresy, hypocrisy as being an infection in the church, then we must strengthen ourselves. One way to be healthy physically is not just to avoid infection, but it's also to be strong in your physical well-being. And so Paul then goes on to talk about weak faith and strong faith. We need to strengthen our faith to be prepared to resist this evil that, that is lurking even within the church. In verse 6, Paul refers to a very specific evil strategy that was being used by false teachers in Timothy's church in Ephesus. He says, for among them these depraved people in the church that he's just described, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. 
Well, first of all, let me be clear. Paul is not making a general statement about all women in all places. He's not saying anything generally about women. He's talking about a very specific group of women that were a part of a very specific church, Timothy's church in Ephesus. These women had been captured, and the word is in the Greek from, uh, it's, a, it's a military term, it's to take somebody as a prisoner of war. They had been captured by these false teachers that have wormed their way into their homes, into their households, have gotten a hearing from these women that were unprepared to hear the false teaching. And they've been captured. And these women were weak in the sense that they were morally, spiritually, and theologically unprepared to deal with the pressure to sin and the pressure to believe falsehood. Paul says that they were burdened with their sins. They didn't understand the gospel. They didn't deal with the gospel in the right way. They did not, they didn't understand and embrace the gospel. Otherwise, they would not have been burdened with their sins and their shame. He goes on to say they were led astray by various passions. They were lacking in self-control. They were easily seduced. And thirdly, he says they were always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That's because they were too willing to listen to falsehood. They were not grounded in the truth of God's word. So they would learn, but they would not come to a knowledge of the truth. In order to understand this, you have to understand in all ancient cultures, women were undervalued to one degree or another. They were treated as lesser valued. Most of them weren't educated. And they were often just sheltered in the home. And it made them gullible and easily misled. And this was true of this group of women in Timothy's church. That made them weak sheep in the flock. And it made them easy prey for the wolves in sheep's clothing that had penetrated into the church. What this shows us today is the vital importance of the discipleship ministries in the church. We just talked about what the women's ministry is doing, and it's wonderful. But, you know, and, 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 and what, what Paul's trying to say is, says to us, yes, we need a very strong women's ministry. There's no doubt about it. In order to help women not be weak morally, theologically. But, to be honest with you, as I look not necessarily at this church, but as I look at the churches at large, it's the men who are often morally and spiritually weak in the churches. It's the men who have not been adequately discipled and prepared. It's the men that have become gullible, the men that live in compromise in our culture. What Paul is saying to you, who are the weak sheep in your flock? Who are the ones who need to be trained, equipped, discipled, so that they can be healthy and strong to resist the infection of false teaching and the promotion of sin? especially our children. Healthy churches have the highest regard for the discipleship of their children. Children must be protected, trained, catechized, and prepared for service. My wife and I at one time were accused of brainwashing our children because we taught them the scriptures at home, we took them to church faithfully, involved them in youth group, took them to Christian school, and we were accused of brainwashing our children. They can call it whatever they want. We call it discipleship. And it is of the highest priority that we disciple our children well. Paul gave Titus, another young pastor, a discipleship program 
And he describes it in Titus chapter 2. Listen to how he describes this discipleship for all types of people in the church. He says, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's where it starts. Sound doctrine in the pulpit and the classrooms of the church. Teach sound biblical doctrine. But he goes on to say, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. You see what he's saying? That strong discipleship makes a church healthy so that the world can say nothing evil about us, so that the world will be open to the message that we have, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That brings us to the most important focus of that strengthening faith, which is God's promise. This could be a very discouraging passage to read as it reflects on the dark side, the depravity of human nature, the reality of hypocrites and heresy and false teachers in the church. It can be very discouraging, but Paul ends on a great promise. He begins by talking in verse 8 about two men named Janus and Jambres. Janus and Jambres, who are they? you know who these men are? Don't you know your Old Testament? Well, that's a trick question. They aren't in the Old Testament. You won't find the names. You can do a concordance study or a, you know, do a quick search on it. You won't find Janus and Jambres in the Old Testament because we only know about them from extra-biblical Jewish oral tradition and histories. We know the story of Janus and Jambres, but we, they all actually do show up in the Old Testament. It's in the account. You'll notice he mentions Moses. Janus and Jambres were the names given to the two lead magicians in Pharaoh's court. Remember, these magicians, when Moses walked into Pharaoh's court and said, you must let God's people go, God, Pharaoh resisted. He wouldn't do it. And so, God, so Moses starts doing signs, which led to the plagues, to force Pharaoh to let God's people to go. You remember... Pharaoh's magicians, the magicians in his court, were able to imitate. First of all, Moses' staff turning into a serpent and back into a staff. His magicians were able to imitate that. They were able to imitate, in some form, the uh, Nile turning to blood, the first plague. They were able to imitate the frogs, the second plague. But then they couldn't imitate any of the rest of them. And it actually says, it's interesting, in the text, in, the, in, in Exodus, it says that after they weren't able to, to imitate the third plague of the gnats, it says, they said, this is what the quote is from the magician. It says, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh would not relent. He would not let the people go. Well, Jewish tradition, interestingly, says, again, this is outside of scripture, outside of the Old Testament, but Jewish history says that Janus and Jambres were among those who left with the Israelites. They professed faith in Yahweh, and they left Egypt with the Israelites and went into the wilderness as part of God's people. And by the way, Janus and Jambres undoubtedly was not their real names because actually it's an, they, those are Aramaic names. What Jewish tradition tells us, this was, these were names given to these two men by the Jews because what they mean are, the, the, the Janus means uh, he who seduces, or no, he, yeah, he who seduces, and Jambres means he who causes to be rebellious. 
What great names for false teachers. He who seduces and he who causes to be rebellious. But Janus and Jambres then joined the people of God, but again, Jewish oral history tells us that they were instigators in leading the effort and convincing Aaron to build the golden calf and leading the people to worship and to commit idolatry at the foot of the mountain where the law of God was given. And so from that point on, Janus and Jambres became models of false teachers who have always infected the church of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that, you know, as Paul is saying to Timothy, I'm like Moses, you're like Aaron. We are sent by God to bring God's truth to God's people so that they can be saved, so that they can worship the true God. But Janus and Jambres are like these false teachers that are seeking to lead people astray. And this leads to this precious promise. Don't skip over verse 9. In spite of everything else that's discouraging in this passage, Paul ends by saying, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. False teaching may and it will infect the church. False teaching is rampant in this day and age within the visible church. But back in chapter 2, it talks about the false teachers. Paul mentions two of them there, Hymenaeus and Philetus. And he says in, at the end of verse 18 in chapter 2, they are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The Lord knows the, the invisible church. The Lord has called and chosen the elect, the invisible church. He knows who are his. He will protect them. He will not allow any who have been placed in the hand of, of Jesus Christ to slip out. None will be lost. Heresies and heretics will come and go. And they will keep coming back. But they will always fail. They will always be shown for who they are. And the gospel will always be preached until Christ comes again. Paul gives us a warning in this passage for these last days that we live in. Avoid godless people in the church. Avoid godless teaching in the church. And avoid godless proselytizing in the church. But don't ever forget the promise of God. Jesus stated it clearly when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray. Father, it is difficult. It's difficult as sinners ourselves to stay faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ. But we thank you that you've not left us alone. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. Lord, as this passage may have convicted us that we have not been as committed to your word and not been as committed to your holiness as we should be, Lord, I pray that you would help us to separate from those who would lead us astray. Help us to stay focused upon Christ, to grow in our faith in him. I pray that you would strengthen our faith. And as we approach the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, may, as your word has strengthened us, may now this supper strengthen us as well. Give us grace through this meal, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.